This is Straight Ahead with the 606 Club of London and David Lewis. It's been a long and lonely year But the big man's coming, sack full of cheer He's got his boots on and his big red hat He got presents that he gonna dispatch You can relax The jolly fat man is back Well, you don't like to complicate Read the papers or join debates He can put a smile back on your face Make sure there's room inside your fireplace You can relax The jolly fat man is back Well, everybody needs a holiday Wouldn't you if you've been round the whole world in your sleigh Coming down the chimney And that's no mean feat I think you can forgive him If he overeats We've all been living On the ground well, Christmas morning Comes back around Hold on tightly To the one that you love Cause here's the moment We've been dreaming of You can relax The job Forgive him if he overeats We've all been living on the ground But when Christmas morning comes back around Hold on tightly to the one that you love Cause here's the moment we've been dreaming of You can relax The jolly fat man's come back The jolly fat man's come back Hello and welcome to this week's Straight Ahead with me, David Lewis. And of course, the show is brought to you along with London's leading music venue, the 606 Club of Chelsea. Our opening track this week was from Jamie Cullum. He's just released an album called The Piano Man at Christmas. Not only is it full of great music and some uh, wonderful big band numbers too, just like the one we heard, it's also raising money for Age UK. There's a whole website dedicated to it, thepianomanatchristmas.com. You can find out more details about it there. We're going to carry on now, though, with a track from a trumpeter that we had on the show back in the early part of the summer, Quentin Collins and his album The Road Warriors, and we're about to listen to Oh Look At Me Now.
And the album that you'll find that track on is called The Road Warrior. It's available on vinyl. Pop on over to Bandcamp. Quentin's got a page over there and you get yourself a copy. It's uh, one of those items that's treasured to have in your collection. The artist you'll find on it, of course, Quentin himself is on the trumpet and flugelhorns. Melania Gillard on the alto. Leo Richardson on the tenor. Dan Nimmer on piano. And Joe Sanders on acoustic bass. Willie Jones III is on the drums with a special guest appearance of Jean Toussaint on one of the numbers as well. The Road Warrior from Quentin Collins. And speaking of saxophonists, as we were just then, our guest on the show this week is Binker Golding. Very hot property right now, and we'll be hearing from Binker in a short while's time. And it's all about the sax men right now. Alex Garnett is due to be with us streaming this week. Uh, things obviously have changed a little bit with the uh, current restrictions that the government have imposed upon clubs once again. But here is Alex, certainly in fine form with the track, I've Got Love to Keep Me Warm. <laughs> Thank you. 
very fine form there, was one of the UK's best saxophonists, Alex Garnett, with I've Got Love to Keep Me Warm. And Alex was due to be with us live at the club this coming Friday. But uh, with the current uh, restrictions that have been imposed upon London and entertainment venues such as The Six, things have changed a little bit. But the great news is we are still going to be live streaming and I'll be explaining to you a little bit later on how you can set yourself up an account so you can watch Alex and indeed Joe Harrop and Paul Edis there with us at the club this weekend too. I'll explain to you how to set yourself up an account so you can watch these great acts we've got lined up for you. Next on the show this week is Buddy's Bit though. From the year 1968, the band released an album called The New One. We're going to be listening to a track that was arranged for the band by Dick Grove, and this is The Rotten Kid.
bit of bunny this week was Rotten Kid from 1968. So just ahead of meeting this week's guest, Binker Golding, we are going to listen to a track from Pianist. Paul Edis and his trio. He released an album early this year called Snakes and Ladders. The uh, featured musicians were Andy Champion on the bass and Russ Morgan was on the drums. Paul obviously on the piano and Rhodes and a track we don't think we played on the show before from the album The Long Way Round.
was the Paul Edis trio with Long Way Round. Time now to meet our guest on the show this week, saxophonist Binker Golding. Very hot property right now on the London scene, having just won the Jazz FM Instrumentalist of the Year Award. He also released an album earlier in the summer as well called Abstractions of Reality Past and Incredible Feathers. Nope, <laughs> me neither, but during the course of the interview, you will learn how the album came by that title. And to start off the interview, we are going to listen to a track from it, which features Joe Armand Jones, and this is Exquisite She Green. Straight Ahead with David Lewis. Thank you. 
So our guest this week is saxophonist, band leader and composer and multi-award winner Binka Golding. Binka, hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, David. Well, um, I suppose yeah. that should be our first point of question. Are you doing well? Are you keeping healthy? Um, I'm keeping reasonably healthy and, uh, you know, mentally and physically, although I'm not doing much physically to, um, to uh, back that up. But, um, <laughs> you know, went for a run maybe once. That'll do it. Year. <laughs> you know, this is going to be my new lifestyle. That, that really worked, you know. Yeah. You know, 24 hours. Musicians but, uh, suddenly taken to having a healthy lifestyle. and nah, it doesn't really work that often, does it? You've really got to, um, someone like me, I'd, I'd really have to commit to something like that in a big way. As in, I'd have to go to like a resort or something in like... <laughs> Be locked in basically and pay for it. In like Inner Mongolia or somewhere where they <laughs> no contact with anything. So We'll all start uh, clubbing together now to send you away somewhere, shall we? Yeah, exactly. That sounds Please. rude. I mean, I say that in the nicest possible way. <laughs> yeah, it's only when you, when you hear those things back, you say, hang on a minute. Now, did he mean that? So uh, you're a North London boy, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah, I'm born uh, there and I still live there. Yeah. You're still living in North London now, yeah? Sure so thing. what was growing up for you like then? I mean, musical family or music in the house? Parents, um, musicians at all? Or It was musical to the extent of um, having music in the house, yeah. Um, my parents were, I would say they were musical people mm -hmm. because they were very enthusiastic about, um, listening to music and they took my sister and I to a lot of concerts and things like that when we were young, but, um, neither of them could play an instrument at all. I mean, like my mother can get around the piano basically, mm -hmm. but to, you know, not to like performance standard or anything like that. Um, but my sister and I were both sent to music lessons when, um, when we were children. And um, it stuck with me, and it, it didn't really take with my sister. But um, she's a she's still a big music listener as well. Mm -hmm. So that that's been a big part of family life. We've always had something playing in the house, some music uh, playing. So that catalyst uh, is generally all it takes, isn't it? It can just spark the right interest if music's around you. I think so. Yeah, it's just a, a bit of that, and maybe a bit of encouragement. I think um, from the parents or from someone around you, and. Um, and you can end up going down that path in a in a reasonable way, even if your parents, I think, don't have a background in it. But um, yeah, I heard a lot, a hell of a lot of music, um, you know, before the age of ten. So um, and a really wide variety as well. Really, that wide was going to be my next question. You said your parents were playing plenty of music. Was it classical and jazz and soul music of the generation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was um, a lot of classical and a lot of jazz from my dad's. Mm -hmm. Um, a big, big, big variety. Uh, he had a what I would call a pretty low tolerance for dissonance, though. <laughs> so um, his taste for uh, jazz and classical music sort of copped out somewhere around the classical. It would have copped out somewhere around 1910. <laughs> the jazz it would have copped out around somewhere anything pre Ornette Coleman probably, and then wow. Uh, past that, he's like, nah, it hasn't really got any rhythm. Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> he used to say, well, oh, there's no melody. There's no melody. Like, you know, I need a, I need a melody. So, um, so needless to say, you know, uh, some of my albums definitely <laughs> <laughs> disappointed him. Some of them. But, um, my mother, on the other hand, has a, uh, a high tolerance for dissonance for a civilian. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, uh, there was a, a wide variety of, uh, of, of sounds yeah so classical and jazz and and mum listened to the beatles a lot and um some country music as well she listened to bonnie Raitt a lot mm -hmm. and quite a fair whack of calypso music as well which was 
which was interesting in as far as the horn arrangements, I think. Uh, Calypso music, the horn arrangements are really solid, really tight sort of stuff. So um, I guess it's based around the horn line, I guess, isn't it, Calypso? Uh, that was quite an education in a way, actually, as well. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was. So those early lessons that your parents sent you to, was that piano lessons to start with? No, I start, started on saxophone. Strained to sax. Um, Why sax then? Did you sort of uh, display some sort of interest in the, in the horn or was it parents? No, not at all. I displayed none. I didn't even really know. I knew what a saxophone was, but I didn't, um, you know, and I knew how to identify one by sound, but I was not interested in playing one at all. I was interested in playing guitar, mm-hmm. if anything. And um, that's what I asked. I asked to go to guitar lessons and um, my parents said no. Because um, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan at that time, and wow. I still am as well. Yeah, and at the, t- at the time, I, was, I would have been eight years old when this all was happening, seven or eight years old. So That's when you started lessons? Yeah, yeah. that's when I started lessons. I, started, I showed an interest long before that. I asked uh, my parents for music lessons when I was like really small, but they were like, oh, no, you won't take it seriously, whatever. There was always some excuse, you know, mm. it was financial really that's probably the real problem but um <laughs> uh at the time guns and roses were notorious they were like super super notorious for you know everything bad basically like you know drug taking and swearing and um you know all of that kind of like sort of 80s early 90s rock and roll lifestyle and i was really into that as a kid i really liked that i used to you know dress up as slash and stuff and so I, I wanted to be like them. And um, so I thought the first step in doing that would be to learn guitar. And um, my parents were like, no, no. way, <laughs> no way. And so they gave me a choice between saxophone and violin. And so it was, a, for me, it was a process of elimination. I thought to myself, like, violin is too limited. Mm-hmm. Scope's too narrow. And, you know, I'd be stuck in a, in a classical orchestra or something. Or, and I just wasn't interested. So I, I chose saxophone and you know i just didn't question it after that i just didn't really question it i just was like okay this is the instrument i'm playing yeah but this and did it kind of make sense to you because oftentimes you can tell somebody's calling by speaking to so many musicians it's it's they kind of find that the instrument or the instrument finds them and immediately it just resonates it makes some sense and you kind of understand it almost innately was that the case with you it made it did make sense to me. It was it was logical. Um, I, I wasn't a child prodigy or anything like that, but I was I had like a, a knack for it. Basically, mm. I, I had a, like a mild talent for it as a child. Mm-hmm. So um, it sort of fell into place. I you know I had a very good teacher, fortunately, that I stayed with for ten years for the for first ten years of my music training, and um, so virtually through to uni age then. Yeah, literally, literally, like bang on the nail. So from from eight to eighteen, yeah. um, did uh, classical studies with one one teacher, and um, it always felt logical to me. It wasn't an instrument I picked up and was like, "Oh, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever." Um, ironically, actually, the guitar is like that for me. Like even now, after doing you know composition studies and having a um, musical education, I still I have a guitar in this house for mm-hmm. composition purposes and. I still can't understand it. I know how it's tuned. I know, you know, that the frets move up chromatically and so on, but I still can't get my head around how the thing works. It's not like a saxophone or a piano for me. And that's exactly what I mean. It, it was almost like the, the sax was meant for you, clearly. Yeah. So you learned yeah. to read while playing sax then? Yeah, sure, sure, totally. Um, 
uh, it was all reading. It was really all reading until I was about 13 or 14. And at that point, I about 13, I think, I took an interest in improvisation. Um, I got hold of like uh, some pieces of paper with blue scales written on them. Mm-hmm. And I started playing these blue scales. It was no music per se. It was just literally just a scale. And I knew that, you know, okay, this is a scale that you improvise with. And that was it for me. Um, that I really, really took to. I was like, yeah, this is this is probably going to be the pathway for me. And after that, my interest in jazz and classical music, they ran parallel with each other. And um, I kept on pushing towards the side of, of doing classical music as a career. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I just, I just, something about doing things the exactly the same, more or less exactly the same way every night and, um, you know, not being responsible for the notes on the page myself all the time that I didn't think I could make a, a full-time career out of that. Whereas with jazz, obviously it changes every night. You can play the same repertoire and it changes every night, which is to me is generally more interesting. That's, um, that's the world I like to put myself in. And I feel more responsible for the music I make as well. So did it feel when you began to discover the, the freedom of jazz, the improv world of jazz, did it feel like something had been unleashed in you that suddenly you had this whole world of expression yeah. that was now yeah. available to you? Yeah, it really was a, a sense of unleashing, actually. That's really the, the right word. It, it mapped on per- perfectly to my personality. It made perfect sense that you should have, you know, a set of notes or whatever and, and melodically improvise with those notes in such a fashion that I, I never, ever questioned that. I've, I've uh, taught hundreds of students, uh, whether as individuals or in workshops and so on, and sometimes you, you come across students and um, you have to introduce them to improvisation. Sometimes these are adult students as well that have been playing an instrument for many years. And it's surprising the amount of times that that they can't get their head around the concept. They understand what you're asking of them, but they can't mm. get their head around the concept of, but, you know, I'll be responsible for the melody. I have to make this up as I go along. How am I going to do this? For me, there was never any question to that. I just made sense perfectly. Mm. Um, that's not to say that it was sounding any good. <laughs> it, took, it took like years for it to, you know, for me to really musically make any sense of it. But um, I was so uh, engrossed in that that um, I just kept on hammering away at it until I could make sense of it, until people people kind of would pay to listen. It took years. But. So before <laughs> what, actually, I've got a couple of questions in mind. The classical, formal classical training you'd been having for a good many years, you say almost 10 years. Does that uh, segue or lead neatly towards understanding jazz? I don't know what the two techniques are like, even from a, 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 you know, a mouth and a setup point of view. Embouchure, the whole thing. I don't know how similar they are. There's, there's definitely similarities. Um, and I think it's a really good uh, basis to have. I think it's a really good fundamental basis to have because uh, different, different musicians will vary on this opinion, but I always think there's only really one correct way to play saxophone, really. Like, if I'm honest, there's, there's, it was designed to be played one way, but then... The thing is with jazz is because of some of the, the uh, sounds and effects that we want to get out of the instrument, I see it as, as jazz technique. You're layering new things upon the, the fundamental technique. I always see it that way. So you learn the, uh, the so-called correct technique, the fundamental way of playing. And then for me, a layer 
new things on top of that. So, um, for example, in jazz, uh, some of the time I, I deliberately will play with much heavier fingers on the saxophone, as in I'm sort of more slamming my fingers down to the keys more than I would do in a classical piece. Um, because in jazz, often you want that articulation. You want um, some of that rhythm and articulation to actually come from the fingers themselves rather than just the embouchure in the tongue and so on. And um, obviously there's all sorts of other more obvious things like bending notes and mm. various like like growl effects. Growlings, and, yeah, yeah. And now obviously as an 18-year-old man, you're leaving North London off to Middlesex, to University of Middlesex. And that course, was that, uh, I mean, it was a jazz course that you took there, wasn't it? Um, sure thing. Presumably that really lit your fire, I'm guessing. You're suddenly a young man away studying jazz. You're in, the, in London now. You've got gigs around you galore, musicians to go and see every night of the week, a whole musical world to absorb into. Did it really ignite you? Did you think this is my calling? Yeah, oh, by, by that point, um, well, I, I made the decision that I would want to be a professional musician when I was 15. Like, I remember exactly where I was. I was in my school, actually. I was in my secondary school. And um, I remember where I was in this particular room. And um, so I made the decision that I, re I knew I wanted to do that as a job. I just wasn't too sure what pathway I'd go down. And um, so I'd made the commitment. I was like, there's no turning back. If I don't do this, I won't be satisfied in life. I'll, I'll live a, a miserable life if I don't mm. do this as a job. And so by the time I got to Middlesex, I, it, it just was... But to me, it was like heaven, actually, really, studying jazz for the first time at the um, at university. It didn't end up, like, after, <laughs> after three years, it didn't feel like heaven at all. It felt like hell. But um, I was like, initially, I was like, I, you know, I'm very, very glad to be in a institution where everything was jazz constantly. And um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people hated the university environment and so on. I, I loved it. I was always, there was always something interesting for me, whether it was in the lectures or whether it was in the library or something like that. There was always something. So that was enriching for a start. And then, of course, already like being a Londoner, the, there was so much, um, so many jam sessions and so on. Mm that were consistently happening. I started to go to them in my teens already. So by the time I hit Middlesex, it, uh, I already had half the ball rolling in that sense. Um, I used to go to jam sessions all the time from about 15, 16 years old. So um, it can be a very intimidating arena, can't they, jam sessions? They're full of yeah. testosterone and, and particularly with horn players and sax players. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, sax players are, are really known for that. It's just like a... Um, it's a part of the culture, I think, of, um, of uh, saxophonists. So I, know, I do notice that some of that's dying out in a way. I think people are, people are a bit nicer these days, I think. I think everything's getting a bit nice. And I mean, that's a good thing. And maybe, maybe there's a bad thing to say about that as well. I think every now and again, you need a bit of testosterone somewhere. Um, so there was a, a hell of a lot of that. And uh when I was in my mid-teens, uh, my dad used to take me to these places because I, you know, I couldn't really get into some of them mm -hmm. just by myself. So he used to accompany me. And um, my dad, my father and I, we really didn't see eye to eye at any point in our life, really. You know, we didn't really get on massively, but, you know, it's not as bad as I make it sound. But one thing I do sort of thank him for in the long run was he was... 
he had a very cut and dry attitude of like, well, you're either, you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. So like you can stand on the side. He's like, this is what he used to say to me literally word for word. He's like, he's like I brought you all the way here. You better go on stage and play. You know, <laughs> you can't, if you stand on the sidelines here now, you're going to be standing on the sidelines for the whole of your life. So you choose, it's one or two. You either go on stage and play and get over it and fit yourself in and maybe make some mistakes or you go home and kick yourself, you know? And he would like literally like push me on stage, man. Like the first time I ever played in public, I think really outside of school was at the jazz cafe in Camden and they used to have a jam session there on Sunday. And he literally, you know, must've been about 15, I think. That's a young age for getting up there and jamming though. It was, it was pretty young, but I'm glad it happened, man. It was like at the time, you know, you know when you want that feeling of when you want to do something, but you're too scared to do oh, it. Oh yes, yeah. Feeling, you know, it's, you know, and you would have got it's, it's kind of like asking a woman out for a date or something like that. And you, you, you're tripping up, you yeah. You're tongue tied. You're nervous. You're tight. Exactly, and then and then you don't do it, and you go home and you kick it. Or if you're like me, you'll kick yourself for like a week or something like that. Because yeah. I I I hold on to these things for like weeks, man. I hold on to mistakes for weeks. So um. In my heart of hearts, I wanted to get up on stage, but I just, I, you know, um, it was intimidated. I didn't mm. have the nerve for it, but he was very, my dad was very good in that way of um, giving that sort of a push. And um, as I say, very, very blunt. That very rod tough. of steel, yeah. Uh, so like really very, very tough guy in that sense. But, you know, I, th- I do thank him for and it. And it was something so. else you said of interest uh, is when you got to university, suddenly you had the time to study and be immersed in jazz. Because I don't think people understand the pressures on a, a teenager trying to learn uh, music to a high standard and also get through their exams. It's a hellishly stressful period of time, isn't it? If you're trying to do the GCSEs, A-levels uh-huh. and study as well and go to jams, this whole thing. And, you know, it, it can break people because it's so much to take on. You don't want to give up your passion, your, you know, the, the life you're trying to lead. But equally, you've got to do exam work as well. And obviously, to get to university, you need the exams. Sure, yeah. I mean, when I was at school, I'm, I've always been the sort of person that I like to do one thing. I've got a very uh, one-track mind in that sense. So, um, you know, for example, people have often asked, oh, did you learn to play any other instruments? I was like, no, I, I started playing one and I was, I was only ever interested in getting better at that one instrument. I wasn't interested in doubling on clarinet or flute or anything like that. So I've always been very much going down the, this one lane. And when I was at school doing GCSEs and A-levels, and especially A-levels, when I was, you know, when you're given a bit more leeway, I literally said to myself like it's not that i didn't care about studying at school anymore but i said to myself i need to dedicate everything to this one art form Mm. and i did push all my exams to one side i could have put i mean this is if there's any young people who are doing a levels listening to this like do not do what i did necessarily this is what works for me and it was a it was a risky game you know it was risky business um and i was just completely prepared not to have a plan B whatsoever. I was like, no, it's plan A or nothing. I like your style. Yeah, I, I, I kept on turning up to A-level uh, late in the morning. I, you know, I turned, used to turn up at like halfway through the lessons or whatever, you know, because I would be at jam sessions. Yeah, of course, yeah. And um, so I turn up late to that. And some of the lessons I really loved, I loved English Lit when I was at school. And I still do. I still um, love the, the 
concept of English literature and going through novels and so on. I derive a lot of meaning from that. And I turned up to the lessons band, but when it came to the exam, I was like, I didn't, I haven't read this book because the, the teachers we had were super interesting. They were very discursive teachers, uh, used to, you know, they really, they didn't just teach the syllabus. They really were like those old school teachers that really spread out and, you know, they teach you the whole history of, yeah. of English literature, the whole era, you know, really valuable stuff. Mm. So I used to be in the lessons, like, you know, really paying attention to what they were saying. But when it came to reading Emma by Jane Austen, I was like, man, I've got Haven't practice. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't going to read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> now I've got like these Charlie Parker things to learn. <laughs> so I put that all to one side and, you know, the, my results suffered for it, but my career didn't. So, I mean, that's, that's how I, that's how I played yeah, it. Yeah. You're master of one, not jack of all. Mm. You know?
I told you it was one of those interviews that you'd not want to miss. Insightful and full of fascinating facts and conversation. And we'll be hearing more from Binker in a short while's time. But the track we finished out the uh, first part of that interview with was Non Plus Ultra, a track that you'll find on the album released early this year, along with pianist Elliot Galvin. And the album is called Ex Nilo. And to say, we just listened to Non Plus Ultra. We're going to carry on now, though, with a fine trumpeter in the UK, Freddie Gavita. And this is the track called Streaming the Ham. You're listening to me, David Lewis, and this is Straight Ahead. Listen online, on DAB, and on smart speakers. Straight Ahead with London's leading music venue, The 606 Club.
talking about fascinating titles for a track. When we had Freddie on the show around about a year ago, he was explaining to us that uh, Strimming the Ham was all about making sure you got off the stage quickly into the dressing room and got first dibs on the food they leave out for the guys in between sets. Strimming the Ham, taking the best food for yourself. Can't say I blame you either, Freddie. So we're going to go back now to our guest on the show this week. Of course, Binka Golding. And you've heard of the relationship between Binka and drummer Moses Boyd. Uh, they released a critically acclaimed album back in 2017 called Journey to the Mountain of Forever. And we're about to listen to Fate by the Thank you. 
I think we, I, I totally get it. That's my kind of character. I'd rather be halfway good at one thing than try and spread myself thin. Sure, yeah. So yeah. you then went on to do a master's as well, didn't you? That was at the Guild Hall. Yeah, exactly. So um, after uh, Middlesex, I went immediately. I went immediately from school to Middlesex and immediately from there to Guildhall, so, um, which ended up being four years of uh, jazz studies. Um, Another four to- years? Yeah, sorry, four years in total, yeah. So four years in total. So, and then I left Guildhall in 2008 after uh, gaining a master's from there. And um, that was a lovely experience. Like Guildhall, I, you know, they really, they really worked me to the bone there. Was it the, the, the was it the polish that you needed? You feel after the the degree, getting the masters, did it add another layer to you? I yeah, it definitely did. It definitely did add another layer to me. And my thing then and still is now was I just wanted to learn everything. I wanted to learn if I was you know spending time on my craft. I wanted to know everything about my craft. Mm. So. I felt to myself, well, these master's degrees, they must exist for some reason. Mm. There has to be something after the degree that someone's not telling me. I, I want to know what it is. And so I went. And um, sure enough, there were things that they weren't, you know, that they hadn't told me on the degree. Um, I was glad I went, you know. Um, yeah. And these translated to your performance as a, as a player, not just in technique, not just in, say, history or melody, actually as a performer, it enhanced yeah. you. Yeah, actually, as a performer, and I would say uh, Guildhall, particularly at that time, um, especially as a composer as well. And uh, a lot of that was down to Scott Stroman, who um, was head of head of uh, jazz composition there at that particular time. I know Scott still does work there, but I'm not sure what his role is at the moment. But um, I got on really, really well with Scott. Um, he, you know, became like a, a real kind of mentor figure for me, and um, I gained a lot from uh, being in his class compositionally. Um, yeah, and he was just a general, all-round nice guy. So. And was it around that time that you began to form your uh, association with Moses, drummer Moses Boyd? Was that through the, the Guildhall that you picked up together? I think it was just after that, um, maybe two years after, or a year after, just it goes into a bit of a blur. But um, it would have been just after Guildhall, I think. Yeah, that's when I really started working with Gary Crosby closely and um, doing a number number of things with Tomorrow's Warriors in one way or another. And um, Moses and I met pretty early on um, in the Tomorrow's in our Tomorrow's Warriors experience. Yeah, and of course, you two won a Mobo together as well, didn't you? Uh, um, That's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's still. when you put that one in context, it's a funny one to think about, I must say, because um, that album, well, you know, we, we put everything we could into that album, but I, I never believed that that first Binker and Moses record was going to um, do what it did on paper, at least. So, yeah, that was, that was really something. And winning something that's high profile as a Mobos, does that uh, catapult you into a whole new different level of availability, you know, the gigs you were getting, the festivals you were getting? It did. It did change change all of that. Yeah, it definitely did change. Uh, we went from playing in you know pubs that had jazz once a week to you know working internationally. Mm. It wasn't overnight, but it did happen over the course of about a year. So from it winning. was the foot in the door then. Yeah, it was. It was a definite foot in the door. From that point on, um, we had a bit of weight behind us, and um, we also had some leverage with the record label as well. We came back to them and said, you know, we want to do the second album with you and we want to do a double album. And they were like, yeah, anything, anything. Yeah. yeah. 
they started really believing that, oh my God, okay, these two guys, they must know something that we don't, you know. So um, we, you know, they met our demands and um, yeah, we've, I've we, had a good relationship with the label ever since. And isn't that a lovely way to do it? that phrase there, they met our demands, isn't that, it's the right way around. The musicians actually saying what they wanted. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think just, I mean, the music industry can be, a, I think, a vile place. And I really mean that word. Um, you know, that's not an exaggeration. You know, like the record label world, it's, it can be a vile environment. And um, you can be put in a position where you can't create art. And when you're in that position, to me, it's over. I'd rather not do it. I'd rather just play gigs and do what I wanted to do and not release anything. If through, I was through both your master's and your degree, was there any point of that education that taught you how to, I'm going to say behave, that's a wrong word, but how to, <laughs> put, how to portray yourself in a, in a record industry world, you know, how to make sure that you weren't put upon, how to go in and say, look, this is what we need. It is a behavioural thing because, as you say, it's a, a hor- it can be a horrid place to be and that I'm assuming they can often take advantage of somebody new on the game. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Still, today, people are being taken advantage of. New, I've heard a few stories in recent times. Luckily, of them, none of them have involved me. Mm. But um, my degree courses, that was not an aspect of either of them. They were performance-based. Performance-based, yeah. Um, there was no, if there was a module for that, I, I didn't know about it. I didn't get to turn up to it, but, um, so you had to learn that the hard way on the sort of on the cold face. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I learned that on the job. Basically I learned all of that sort of side of it on the job. And I've got a few friends who are very accomplished musicians who did like pop degrees and things like that. And things at um, drum tech and all mm-hmm. of that, those sort of places. And uh, those guys know way more about that. Those guys come out of those courses, um, sort Better of pop prepared. musician, musician courses, knowing how that world works. Whereas I think a lot of jazz musicians and classical musicians, people that study in conservatoires and so on, they don't even they don't even know what a point on an album is, let alone how many they're supposed to have. Mm, you yeah. know, so <laughs> yeah, you if you don't learn the law, you can get screwed. Right, That's, right. So another big point to make to any young musicians listening is understand yeah. that side of the industry. Learn the literature. Get the literature. Um, there's a couple of good books that have been written on this stuff that get updated every now and again. And um, they are worth the read. Yeah, read the literature and read up on the court cases that go down because (laughs) they are, yeah, they're really fascinating, really fascinating, some of the music court cases. And so we mentioned your MOBO early on and through your career, you've had a decent amount of awards bestowed upon you, a couple of Jazz FM awards, the Parliamentary Jazz Awards, and this year, Best Instrumentalist from Jazz FM. Yeah, that was that was. Um, so how does that go of, down? Do you kind of know in advance you're going to win, or they just say that you've nominated, or I I knew like about a week before the announcement of the nomination that you'd been nominated for. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. So they they send me that information. They're like, oh, you've been nominated, but don't say anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah. So that was a that was a nice surprise. I, I I didn't know that was coming at all. I mean, I, I put my my back into every show I do. I really believe in doing that, but I didn't necessarily think that I would have been shortlisted or even uh, win. 
uh, that particular award. Uh, they didn't see that coming. Because, of course, it had to be an online presentation award this year, didn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, initially when the nomination happened, that was actually pre-coronavirus. Oh, so it? it looked, yeah, it actually looked like everything was going to be normal. And then they were like, oh, no, like <laughs> we can't hold this in, in Shoreditch Town Hall. And so um, they were like, okay, we'll delay it. We'll see what happens. Maybe we can do it in the summer. And then they couldn't do it. In the, and it kept on getting delayed. Kept on. So they kept me in suspense for like six months or something like that. Whereas usually it would have been like a month, but it was like six months. I was just like, just tell me already. Like, <laughs> like you know, like just say. Like, yeah, put me out of my purgatory. <laughs> just tell me. Yeah, exactly. And of course, I'm looking at the release of your album last year, which is a fascinating title. I love titles. I love t- And this has got to be right up there with the best of them. And it's Abstractions of Reality, Past and Incredible Feathers. Now that, that is, is, that is right. some title. Yeah, explain. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sure. sit back now and just let you explain that one to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm waiting for Jazz FM or some you know company like that to do an award show for best title. <laughs> maybe they, maybe Straight Head can do that. <laughs> yeah, finally do. Hopefully, I'll, you know, I'll be in the running or something like that. That might be an easy easy one to get for me. But um, that title, where did it, it come from? Well, yeah, I'm very interested in titles, and as you can see, the jazz music that I make has no lyrics in. Mm. So um, the challenge is always to get the picture across in the titles in conjunction with the instrumental music. And so that one, well, when I was writing that album, I realized I, was, I wasn't getting any younger at all. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not complaining about my age or anything like that. I, I enjoy getting older because it means I'm still alive. So I was 33 or something when... I was writing that music, 33 or 34. And I was like, oh, really? Has all those years gone past? Really? Am I that old? Because all of the reviews and stuff, they're like, oh, yeah, this new young London jazz scene. Oh, Binker Golding must be quite young. I'm like, I'm not as young as these people think. So I'm getting on now and started to look at my life and um, think how much time have I got left? Where really am I in the journey? I've had a few friends I went to school with that have passed away that haven't been as lucky as me and um, started to write this music and realize that it, it started to dawn on me that the music was a, more or less about people that I've known in some way or another. And um, it was also about, let's say, incidents that have uh, occurred in my life. And so the title for the album started to emerge from that. So to say abstractions, I was like, well, what's a, what's a more interesting word for music? I mean, what is music really? It's an abstraction of something, really. I don't know what it's an abstraction of, but it certainly is one. Um, abstractions of reality past. So music of my past and Incredible Feathers is from Emily Dickinson. So, uh, there's a poem where she says, hope is the thing with feathers. So... Um, I said to myself, well, I think what's made me last all these years and sustained me is, is hope, some kind of belief, hope. So I said, well, you have to live your life with incredible hope. You have to live your life with incredible feathers. You can't just give up, you know? Mm. So music of music of my past and hope for the future, more or less, that's what the title means. I was aching. That's a fascinating explanation. I was aching to understand that. It's, <laughs> it's always the thing when you buy a great jazz album, you, you can try and go online and find these answers and so often you can't get to the bottom of, you know, some of the compositions on the, it's just lovely to know what's behind. 
Oh, no, no problem at all. A lot of people have asked, and um, I kept on not telling them, actually, but I think it's been, it's probably, it's been out for like a year now, so I think it's, I can say, I can say now. And, of course, one of your more recent gigs, possibly one of your last gigs, was uh, with us down at the Six, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. That was one of um, two of the last shows I've done this year. Uh, I did one after that, but that was, the one at the Six was one of the, God, that's probably like the, fourth show I did in the year mm. um, so for, that was in October I think so just to let anybody outside of the industry know I mean I consider that's nothing mm. you know four, four shows from January to October that's like literally I do the more than that in like two weeks yeah. a week yeah. usually so um, and then did yeah a show at King's Place after that uh, in the London Jazz Festival um with a new trio that I'm that I'm working with. Um, sorry, was there a question? No, to... just no. I was just saying that that was one of your more recent gigs back at the Six of Course. And do you get ring rusty through not gigging? Just in being match ready. There's um there's a degree of that. Yeah, I I do practice continually whether mm-hmm. I've got show or not. I'm I always practice. I think there's always there's always room to move into. There's always something to learn for me. I'm. You know, I've still got plenty of stuff to study on saxophone, so I do keep that in shape. But um, the communication of playing with other musicians, yeah. Exactly what I was meaning, yeah. That, you, it does start to slip. Um, it's not the same as being on the road for a week or two weeks with the same band. You're just not going to be in the same place, no matter how much you practice at home. Mm. It does come back to you very quickly uh, when you're on the show. But um, so the good old muscle memory does work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does kick in. You know, the adrenaline does kick in, and and so on. But um, it's not quite the same. No, it's it's not the same thing. Exactly what I was meaning. Yeah. And how's the diary beginning to look now? Are you beginning to get promoters and clubs talking to you a bit more about the possibility of gigs? Um, I've got one show next week on Sunday. Well, we're doing we're doing two on the same day in in the jazz cafe on Sunday, the what the 13th. And that will be my last one of the year. And for next year, I think my agent was talking that there was one or two abroad. But I, I'll be honest about it, man. It's not like there's an influx of gigs that are coming in um, to my agent at the moment, uh, whether they be in Europe or in the UK. Um, no, at the moment, I'm not seeing any sort of like massive bright signs of... Uh, mm. Oh well, you know, after March first, we're going to be fine, and uh, you know, we'll book you for this festival and that one over here. Is like no, not at all. And what I'm hearing is a lot of silence, um, and that's not just from me; that's from other people I know. Because I, the other that I work with, I'm not hearing anything from them either. No, I was going to say, if it makes you feel any better, all of the artists we've had on this year, you know, they're all saying the same of recent. Still this side of the industry seems to be so slow in picking up. There's no permanent site. You know, it's spluttered back into life, but there's mm. no fervor at the moment. So, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I know it's tough times for you. I know, I know that. So any plans on recording more while this situation's like it or not? Definitely. Um, that is something that I can control. Mm. And, um, we, as in, we, as in myself, John Edwards, the double bass player, and Steve Noble, the drummer, recorded a record in i think it was august or something july or august we recorded a free jazz trio album which will be released in march next year or approximately march april i think 
um, next year. So that's coming out, which I'm very, very, very proud of the music. And I'm very proud of the uh, fact that something will be coming out. I like to mm. release, release regularly. I think I like to have a decent output. So um, 2021 will definitely at least have one release. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm closing in on the completion or the composition completion of uh, the, the, let's say the follow-up to the last quartet album. Um, it's not, it's not a sequel, but it's, uh, you know, another straight ahead jazz album, contemporary jazz records. Um, there'll be a guitarist on there in addition to piano, but it will be in a similar vein to, um, to abstractions. So, there'll be a follow-up to that, so to speak. And I'm looking to get that recorded next year as well. So I'm assuming this period of time has been good for your writing creativity then when you haven't been out on the road as much. It has been, it has been good for that. I've, I've, although I have got very frustrated with that this year in the sense that the year has gone by now and I still haven't quite completed this music yet. Whereas years ago when I was, for example, when I was at Guildhall, I was a, terrifically fast writer terrifically fast but i think that's because i i knew less <laughs> i was probably less of a perfectionist then so i could knock out charts like even big band charts you know by hand like overnight like full arrangements and things and um now i've been haggling with this this double album that i'm working on for like over a year over a year now i'm like no that's just not good enough i'm not you know i'm not going to make people pay money to buy that music that is not worthy of people's money and time. And um, I've really, this is really, of all the music projects I've ever dealt with, this one that I'm writing at the moment is the biggest uh, labour I have ever um, put myself to. I think you put your finger on it. I think it's life catching up with you. You've got more experiences, more to draw on, more success and failure, just more emotions. And that's clearly Mm. going to show, and that's, I guess, how it should be for a musician. It is a journey through your career and, and as I've established that uh, a recording very much is a, is a pin drop of where you are at that point in your life and that will remain forever. True, exactly, exactly. And you, you have to get it right. Um, <laughs> and the older you get, the, the, the word right keeps on changing. Mm. I find, mm. You know, I already look back on the last quartet album and I, I hear compositional mistakes in it but I wouldn't do now. I'm mm. like, no, I should have done this there. That was actually, this would have been the correct solution. Um, I still like the album, but yeah, even if I wrote it now, which is just about a year and a half later or something, two years later, um, there'd be different things on there. There'd be different moments. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the way an artist should be. You know, if you look back and you're completely satisfied a year on, it means you haven't <laughs> developed. Yeah, exactly. So well, I'm thinking maybe in the future as a, as a kind of, not as a joke, but as a kind of, as a thing, I, I might do a remake of uh, that album or like some other album. What, they, a, you know, what a fascinating idea. What a concept. Yeah, in the same way that they remake films. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So literally um, almost take that album track for track and just show where you are now with that same chart. Yeah, yeah. Literally take the exact same tracks, uh, but maybe- I love that idea. Additional differences, like what I think are improvements, you know, revisions. And same order, same title, but, you know, as a remake. Um, and maybe even the same lineup as well, if uh, I could get this. And edition. of course, the, you know, as we've said, jazz is the perfect form for that because it's never going to be the same anyway on a given day. Oh, that, I love that idea. That's a, I've never heard anyone suggest it, but it, it resonates with brilliance to me. <laughs> 
heard it here first, so hopefully <laughs> you'll let I got the A&R men behind me. They heard it, don't worry. <laughs> Sue, sue them for intellectual property or something. <laughs> so before I let you go, let's just let people know where they can find you. Nice and easy to find. Man like Binks on Insta and on Twitter. You're binkergolding.bandcamp, which is obviously a great place to get your music from. And, sure uh, and on Facebook, it's some, simply Binker Golding. You're really super easy to find. And on, uh, uh, on your website as well is binkergolding.com, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, and it's, problem. yep, you can get your albums direct from you. And we always mention this, it's best to try and buy them directly as they can so the money goes to you. Because yeah. these, uh, these albums are not cheap. Worth more to us that way. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you said you might be releasing something next year, Binker. If it's okay with you, I maybe got pencil in another return visit. I'd love to talk to you some more. Problem at all. Yeah. Um, I've, I've loved this. I've loved chatting to you. You've, you've really lightened my day and your, your view on music. It's got such an energy and a verve to it. It's, it's, you've got a great take on the way the music industry should be going and, you know, where you want to be as a musician as well. No, thank you very much. I try to keep my, uh, I try to look up at the stars, but keep my he- my feet firmly on the ground. Yeah. It comes through. Binker, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks That's for having fascinating. Me. Thank you, Binker.
finishing up the interview with Binker there with another track from the album that you now understand why. It's called Abstractions of Reality Past and Incredible Feathers. And the track we just listened to was Strange, Beautiful, Remembered, featuring Joe Armand Jones, the pianist. So let's have a little look at the gigs that are coming up as a live stream. Now, to create yourself an account, it's dead simple. Just go over to 606club.co.uk. You can create yourself a free account there. And then as and when the gigs come along that you want to watch, you simply pop into your account, pay the price of a, a drink, really. And uh, you can watch all these wonderful acts in high def with great audio, too, from the pleasure of your own home. So as things stand at the moment, my uh, co-host, and I'll be talking about Joe in just a moment, Joe Harrop, she is down there with Tony Kofi and Paul Edis live streaming this week. We've got Alex Garnett, who we heard from a little earlier on both Mo Pleasure and Gwyneth Herbert all due to be streaming with us over the next few days so get that account set up and enjoy some fine music and I mentioned about Joe Harrop well uh, we've decided we're going to bring our show forward just by one week so this month you can enjoy us on Christmas Eve and particularly on Christmas Day as a podcast it is 100% Christmas including Jingle Bells supplied by Joe and uh, Christmas Jokes as well also <laughs> supplied by Joe so I hope you can join us next week on Straight Ahead for that now one of my favourite artists of the moment Sandra May Lux, who's just released a fantastic album called Happily Ever Now, has also released a Christmas single, and we're about to listen to Where Is Christmas? If you want to know what's happening at The Six, check out the website at 606club.co.uk. So come on back Christmas 
Christmas Now from Canadian-born Sandra Maylux, my artist of the moment, as I mentioned. And although Canadian-born, she's now living in the UK, in London, in fact, and in the early part of lockdown, April and May, recorded an album which was released about a month ago, and it's called Happily Ever Now. And being that time of the year, if you're looking for those last few elusive gifts, and I reckon buying that CD from Sandra May would make any music lover in your life very happy on Christmas morning. I know if I was to wake up and uh, find that in my Christmas stocking, I'd be smiling from ear to ear. So with things changing as quickly as they are currently, it's more important than ever that you go over to our website. It's updated regularly, so you'll know what's going on, <laughs> certainly as much as we do, and we'll keep you up to date with all the information of the acts and artists that are coming your way. But make sure to create yourself that account so you can log on and watch the wonderful acts we have got down at the club. Dead simple to do, and it's all in HD and great audio quality too. So normally Joe Harrop and I do our show together on the last Wednesday of the month but uh, with it being the Christmas month we decided to bring it forward just that uh, one week so that you can enjoy us on Christmas Eve and as I mentioned earlier on on Christmas morning too. It's really full of Christmas songs from start to finish which means uh, you know that Joe chose them. <laughs> She's got an extensive Christmas library so I hope you can join us next week on the show for that. But as we come to the end of this week's Trade Ahead I just want to say a huge thank you to Binker Golding a wonderful interview. I'm sure you'll agree don't forget check out uh, Binker on all his social platforms and most importantly go and check out his albums on Bandcamp and buy them and support the uh, the artists that we just heard from a little bit earlier on Binker thank you so much for your time so an album that has been receiving wonderful critical acclaim everywhere is Gabriel Latchin's current Christmas album called I'll Be Home for Christmas released on the 4th of December featuring musicians Josh Morrison and Dario D'Alecci and it's a track we've not played on the show before and it is the Christmas standard the beautiful silent night many thanks indeed for your company over the last couple of hours and I look forward to welcoming you back next week with Joe and myself. Ooh.